Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's plan. Y'all know that I love missionary biographies. And I was reading one recently, came across a story I just had to share this morning. It's of a couple named Adoniram and Ann Judson. Anybody ever heard those names before? Early missionaries to Burma, what we know today as Myanmar, early 1800s. Before they were married, Adoniram and Ann, they were both praying separately that God would take them into the mission field. They had had these experiences, this conviction that God was leading them there, and they were both separately praying about it, and then they met each other at a home Bible study. They were 18 and 19 years old. Two weeks later, Adoniram sends a letter to Ann's dad. Two weeks later, sends a letter to Ann's dad asking to marry her. This is, this is how he asks. <clears throat> I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the sake of the glory of God. What would you have said? Um, I I think about, this may be a practice that's going out of style asking the dads, which I wish it wasn't, but um, I think about when I had to do that, how scary that was, and uh, you know, what were the promises I was making and probably the promises you guys were making? I can take care of her. I can provide for her. This is my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. You know, I can imagine some dad asking, you know, you what you're going to do. And if you say something like, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, you know, I'm going to figure it out. He's going to say, get out of here. Or, or you're saying like, I don't know, money, I'm just not that interested. I'm going to be a poet. <laughs> like, get out of here. You know, you're marry my daughter. Okay. That's how Adoniram asks for Anne's hand in marriage. Dad reads this. He reads this this request to never see his daughter again in this world, that likely she'll experience persecution and hardships. So Adoniram is saying, all those securities that most guys want for their daughter, I'm going to provide none of them. She may in fact die over here in the service to the Lord. He reads that and he says something to the effect of, well, this is up to you, babe and looks at her, and she says yes. She says yes. She leaves America. They go as teenagers, basically, to Burma. Uh, She loses three children there. Her husband, Adoniram, is put in a prison camp for years, and she spends every day taking food and passing it to him through the walls. She dies at age 36. But she wrote this while she was there. She said, I rejoice I'm in God's hands. This is after losing several children. I rejoice. I'm in God's hands. 
He's everywhere present. He can protect me in one place as well as he can in another. He has my heart in his hands. And when I'm called to face danger, to pass through scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude. He can enable me to trust him. Jesus is faithful and his promises are precious. I mean, can you imagine an 18-year-old young woman with that kind of confidence in the Father? That kind of willingness to just abandon everything that's temporary and earthly and sacrifice all those things for this eternity, eternal and lasting inheritance and participating in something that's going to make this great difference. Can you imagine that? All right, so that gets us ready to come to Genesis 25. Come with me here to Genesis 25. Let me set this up. We're going backwards a little bit. We're going to do two parts on Jacob and Esau. The first is this story here in Genesis 25, when these two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, although Esau was firstborn, they're twins, but he was firstborn. Because of that, he stands to inherit much more than his younger brother, Jacob. And so that's going to help us to understand what happens here in this story. Pick up in verse 29 of Genesis 25. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that was why he was also called Edom. That means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. And Esau despised his birthright, it says. What's a birthright? It's kind of need to understand that to make sense of this passage. A birthright basically means that Esau, as the oldest son in this culture, stands to inherit nearly everything from his father. At least, according to Deuteronomy, a double portion of everything that his brother, younger brother Jacob would get, but probably more. He would inherit nearly all of the flocks. Uh, he would inherit um, all the fighting men. All the fighting men in this tribe would swear their loyalty to him too. So basically, he would become the next patriarch of this great family that starts with Abraham. It's something like the succession of a throne in a dynasty. They're not kings yet, but he would basically be the rising king to the throne of this family. He's going to inherit everything nearly as the firstborn. That's what it means to have a birthright. Okay. Now, in our world... Uh, this is hard for us to fully wrap our minds around because, you know, we believe we got to be fair with all the kids, or at least our kids believe we got to be fair with them. You know what I'm talking about? Yesterday, one of my kids didn't get a brownie that the other one got or claimed he didn't, right, and broke down because of it, okay? So they are keenly aware of fairness, but that's not how this world works, okay? In this world, Esau is going to inherit nearly everything. That's what it means to have a birthright, and this is what we're told. He trades that that right, and that inheritance for a bowl of stew. What we're told. All of that for a bowl of stew, red stew. Okay, so what I want to pay attention to when I'm reading the Old Testament, among other things, I definitely want to pay attention to stories from the Old Testament that show up in the New Testament 
and how those New Testament authors interpret those stories, okay? I wanna see Old Testament stories through the eyes of Jesus and those who followed him. So come with me to Hebrews 12. Let me show you this. This Esau character shows up again. This is an instructions that the author of Hebrews is giving to the people of God, the people who followed Jesus. And this is what he says. He uses Esau as an example. This is Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he'd done. Okay, look at the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make. He's trying to to zoom in on a single part of this Esau and Jacob story and grab that and say the people of God have to be really aware of this. They have to be on guard against this temptation. And this is how he puts it. This is the flaw that Esau makes. He trades his inheritance rights as the oldest son for a single meal. A single meal versus the inheritance rights of the oldest son. You see that? Okay, you're looking at that and you're thinking what you should be thinking. That's not a good trade, right? That's not good math. Why does he do that? Well, maybe he thinks he's going to get away with it. You know, his father Isaac is not there when he makes this promise. Maybe he's thinking, yeah, I'll I'll promise my little brother something, but nobody keeps the promises they make to their little brother, right? And so dad's never gonna affirm this. He's never gonna get behind this. But sure enough, in Genesis 27, Jacob tricks his dad Isaac to ensure he receives the blessing that that Esau has promised him. So the author of Hebrews conflates those two stories, Genesis 25 and 27, because at the end of 27, the author of Hebrews is right. Esau goes crying to his dad saying, don't you have more blessing to give? And his dad says, sorry, it's Jacob's now. You lost it. Okay, he trades his inheritance rights as the oldest son for a single meal. Came across a story the other day. This is one of those preacher stories you find and you save it and you don't know when you're going to use it until the perfect time. This is it. I hope. You let me know after. Um, came across this guy named Lewis. He was a Canadian guy, still is, lives in Canada. A couple of years ago, his older brother passes away and Lewis and his sister split the estate of their older brother. And so his chunk of that estate is $846,648.46. Canadian, a little less U.S. dollars. So he stands to receive $800,000 from his older brother, and his sister is about an hour away where, where she and the older brother live, working with the bank to settle the estate and get it divided. He lives out of town about an hour away. She gets it all worked out. She calls up her brother, and she says, do you want to drive here about an hour to come pick up what is a bank draft, essentially like a glorified check? Do you want to drive here about an hour and pick up this check for $800,000? Or do you want us to put it in the mail? And he says, just mail it. 
All right, so then we pick up with the story. I'm waiting at the UPS store around 3 p.m. Should you use FedEx, right? I'm waiting at the UPS store around 3 p.m. because that's when they say the guys come in and nothing shows up, he told CBS News. I came back in the evening, nothing shows up, and I'm wondering, what's happened to my inheritance? He says, 10 months later, he still has not received a dime of his $800,000 inheritance because now the bank wants to put a lien against his house before they issue him another draft in case someone somewhere deposits that draft. So lawyers have gotten involved. It's a big mess. But he said this. He said, UPS did offer me a $32 refund for the amount they charged to ship it. And they wrote me a note apologizing for any inconvenience. And that was really nice of them to say, but it doesn't solve my problems, he said. The reporter asked him, what difference would it have made to you if you had that money? And he said, I would have been retired by now. He goes on to say this, I should have just driven there. It's something I kick myself in the rear over every day. He said, what's he trading? A single meal for the inheritance. Right, like the easy way, the quick satisfaction versus the inheritance rights of the oldest son. Now, you and I read this story, and who do we think the bad guy is? We think the bad guy is Jacob, who tricks his brother or takes advantage of his brother in his moment of weakness and then tricks his dad. And we kind of look at Jacob, and we think he's kind of a swindler and kind of a bad dude. And maybe that's fair, but interestingly, the New Testament views Jacob as the good guy and Esau as the bad guy. Jacob's the hero, Esau's the villain, which doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But remember, Hebrews 12, where this reference to Esau is, comes after what chapter? Hebrews 11. You may know what that chapter is famously called, the heroes of faith. It's this chapter that's full of one person after another who do these extraordinary things out of faithfulness for God. And the author of Hebrews, one verse after another in Hebrews 11, tells us what made them heroic. This is what he said. These people, for he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised in this life. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting they were foreigners, strangers on earth, he goes on to say. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared that city for them. This world was not worthy of them. Okay, so you place Esau in Hebrews 12 up against the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, and what's the difference between them? Esau wants to be satisfied right now. Those are willing to wait for something better. Esau's the villain of the story and Jacob the hero because Jacob is working, even though we may not agree with his methods, he's working towards an inheritance, something that's going to last. Whereas Esau trades what's going to last for something that's temporary and won't, a single meal. First, the inheritance rights of the oldest son. You see that? So this is one of the most important principles for the people of God to remember, to be guided by. You could say this is the principle that guides those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. They believed they could endure stuff now. They could make sacrifices 
now. They could resist their own selfish desires now because what? Something better was coming. And that better was worth it. And so back here in Hebrews 12, the author who's talking about Hebrews says that what Esau does is he is godless. And that word godless, the reason it's translated godless, what the word actually means is worldly. And so what he's saying is people in the world make decisions as though there is no God. There is no God who has a bearing and a reality on their life or who is preparing something better and lasting for them. And if you take that God off the table and that is not a reality, then what should you do? You should satisfy yourself right now because there's nothing worth waiting on. There's no one to please, to, to, to satisfy. There's nothing to long for, to look forward to. What should you do? You should satisfy yourself right now. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the perspective. And so one of the kind of key Christian principles is this idea of now versus better. Now versus better. It's not now versus later. It's not like the same thing later, so you should just get it now. It's now versus much better. Okay. So this isn't just something that happens to people in the world, although it certainly does. For years, about five or six years, I did a, a Bible study in the prison, Shelby County Corrections, every Wednesday morning, and that got stopped during COVID. I hope we get to go back in there soon. But the stereotype of guys in jail is that they're each going to say, they got the wrong guy. I didn't do anything. I shouldn't be here. And I ran into a couple of those guys, but most of the guys that I ran into in there would say something along the lines of, I made a snap decision and now I'm paying for it. I decided to satisfy myself right now. And now I'm enduring long-term consequences. If only I had waited for what's better. It's not just guys in jail that deal with that though. I deal with that every day. I mean, I think about it every morning I wake up and my phone is plugged in on my nightstand and my Bible's right there on my nightstand. And which do you go to first? You have that same temptation? Right, like if I go to the phone, I'm going to get this instant dopamine hit. It's going to feel good to myself. Whereas I know that what I find in the, in the Bible is what? Better. It's lasting. It's preparing me for that internal inheritance. So it's not just guys in jail that deal with this. It's not just people in the world that deal with this. It's all of us as the people of God. That's why the author of Hebrews feels the need to remind the people of God, make sure you don't fall for now when there's better out there. Make sure. Now, let me point this out. We're not going deep in here today. Uh, we're going we're to spend more time on this this fall. We're preparing a whole series on this, a training for this church on sex and sexuality. We're going to do this fall. I'd ask you to be praying about that. Our elders and staff have already gone through it. It was great. But maybe you notice that the author of Hebrews, when talking about Esau, he says, make sure that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. He says, sexually immoral to describe Esau. Did anybody hear that and think, I don't remember that in the story. This interaction between two brothers over a bowl of stew, I don't remember the sexual immorality. You remember that? Okay. <clears throat> the Jewish memory of this story includes his marriage that happens later on that they disapproved of. So it may be in reference to that. 
But probably what the author is doing, here's the principle, remember, Esau trades something that satisfies temporarily for what would have satisfied eternally. So what two things give us short-term satisfaction unlike any other two things in the world? Food and sex. And I'm not going to go deep into that. We've got a mixed audience in terms of age and stuff today. We're not going to go down that road deeply. Like I said, we're going to do more on that in the fall. But this is what he's saying. And I hope our young people are paying attention to this. Um, you know, I, I think there is intense pressure on our young people in the areas of sex and sexuality today. Unlike anything that my generation or anybody older than us experienced unlike anything we experience. And so the pressure that they feel is to satisfy themselves now, at least as they understand themselves. To do it when? Now. And the danger, of course, that the author of Hebrews is saying is don't choose now over better. And so what he says the responsibility of the people of God is, is to say to someone who's in danger of making that decision, slow down, stop. Now, I think about my dad. He taught me how to drive in a 1992 Isuzu Trooper. It was a standard, right? I can remember so many times looking over at my dad just pumping an invisible uh, brake in the floor. You know what I'm talking about in the passenger seat? Eric, hit the brakes, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. And um, I mean, I, what's, what's happening there? There's wisdom there. You hit the brakes too late. You may pay for that for the rest of your life. And so that's, what, that, that's the picture that the author of Hebrews has given us is it is so tempting, especially when you're young, but young and old, to choose now, satisfying yourself right now versus what God has prepared for you, which is so much better. So much better. You need people beside you who are saying, slow down, pump the brakes, hit the brakes, because you don't want to crash. There is better in store for you. Don't settle for satisfying yourself right now when there is so much better out there. You want to know what happens? What's really fascinating is that we're told that Esau does this. He makes this trade. And then the story finishes like this. He ate and drank, got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. You see that? Isn't that fascinating? The thing that's supposed to be this great inheritance, he begins to see through this distorted filter and actually hate the thing that's supposed to be better and good for him. Why? Because he's either going to hate himself for making this trade or hate the blessing. And it's much easier to hate that blessing. What's one reason that so many young people are walking away from the church? because they're making decisions to satisfy themselves. And they view the church as the people saying, hit the brakes, don't satisfy yourself right now, wait, there's something better in store for you. Okay, so then they choose to satisfy themselves and they can either resent themselves and feel terrible for what they've done, or they can resent the ones telling them you should wait. So I'm just gonna get away from that. I don't wanna feel that way. That's heartbreaking. That is a heartbreaking reality. So where's Jesus in all of this? 
You know, Jesus tells this story. The author of Hebrews rightly cautions us. And as a church, we have a great responsibility to be in that passenger seat saying, hit the brakes. The author of Hebrews is wise to caution us. Jesus also tells us another story about two brothers. And one of those brothers wants his inheritance. And when does he want it? Now. He wants it right now. And he takes that inheritance and he goes and he satisfies himself. And it turns out this isn't all it's cracked up to be. And maybe I should have listened to dad. But he comes back home to the father and he says to him, the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad doesn't say, that's right. You missed out. You ruined it all. The father says, oh, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It is so important for us as a church to ensure that no bitter root grows up that defiles many. Like the author of Hebrews says, like we are aiming for holiness by God's grace, but the reason we're aiming for that is because our God is a gracious Father who has done so much for us in Jesus Christ that He would welcome us back even when we trade, make that trade, for now instead of better. Even when we make that trade that God's willing to welcome us back because of what his son has done for us. Praise God for that. And that's why we take holiness serious. Because that's the kind of God we have. And that's the kind of God that we want more than anything else to honor. Right? Let me say a prayer over you as we finish today. God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have been working throughout history, weaving together these stories in a way that reveals to us your calling on our lives and your great loving compassion for us. God, I pray that we, like those heroes of faith, might fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal, God. Would you give us that vision and sight? I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.